0: following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. I can just sort of cover it all in one. So, peace be with you and also with you, yes, with each other. Yes, let's let's just welcome. Good to be with you as always in the house of the Lord. Grateful to, to gather with you to study God's Word together. I'd encourage you to to stick around afterwards and hang out, talk, and uh, just love one another, fellowship with one another. You don't have to leave immediately. We're not closing the doors, just FYI. There's no, uh, there's no time limit for how long you can stay. You're welcome to be here all day if you'd like. I'll, I'll leave the door open and the light's on, um, and then Josh will come back and make sure they're locked up afterwards. So uh, please, by all means, continue fellowshipping after service with one another. Uh, we've got coffee now, and uh, so there's lots of ways we can stay awake to do that. But before we look at God's word, let's pray for and with one another, and particularly for those who are not here with us. Father, we ask now that as we spend time in the study of your word, looking at it and examining it, that your Spirit would guide us in its in its meaning. It Will guide me in what I say, as I've been led this week to teach, expound, and to communicate what can be seen and learned about you, about Jesus, about our life as Christians, and about the gospel through the text we'll study. Lord, would you soften our hearts again by your spirit to receive it, to believe it, and to walk faithfully in light of it. For those who may be listening or here who have not given themselves fully to the gospel in faith and obedience, Christ. God, would you work even now through this prayer to begin to soften their heart, his heart, her heart, to receive the good news of Jesus, the salvation of their soul? We pray for those who are unable to gather with us because they're sick. I think of Bill, who's got a sinus infection at the moment. For those who cannot gather because they're indisposed working or dealing with other issues that require their attention, God encourage them by your word and spirit. Recover, word them to health, so that they can again gather with your body and fellowship with the saints. And for those who are not here because of sin or neglect, God would you confront them in the spirit, or through the loving and kind rebuke of a brother or sister in Christ, that they would return to you and to your church. Would we give the next hour plus of our time this morning to you and for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is our text this morning. But we're actually going to go a little ways back into chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. And we'll work our way through chapter 2, verse 3. So First Peter, chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the Bibles on the seats next to you, open that up, keep that, feel free to mark in it. It's yours as a gift from us to you. Um, and uh, you can open that in your Bible app. Or turn there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. One of the blessings of being a parent, and particularly being a father, is watching your children grow and watching your wife care for and tend to the growing needs of your children. If you're a mother, you know what this requires of you, but you also know the special privilege to uniquely provide for your kid in a way that no one else can, especially their fathers. Peter here draws on this experience that at one point we all have experienced as having been infants of having to be fed and nourished by the milk that our mother provides for us. God has created each one of us as human beings to need sustenance. We cannot survive without food, and that begins on day one. One of the very first things we do when we enter into this world is eat. Perhaps cry, but pretty quickly afterwards, eat. We're fed and nourished by our mothers, and if that's unable to be done, which unfortunately sometimes is the case, we are fed and nourished by something that is meant to replicate what the mother provides. We are to be nourished because if we don't receive the nutrients and the food from our mother's milk, we die. We don't have the ability to chew food, to gather food for ourselves. It must be brought to us in a very real sense, placed in our mouths, and we must be fed and nourished by those who are caring for us, by our parents, particularly by our mothers. Peter, Peter knows this, this experience we all can relate to at one point or another. And so he says, "Like newborn infants, long for spiritual milk." Now Peter also picks up on this idea of or Paul elsewhere picks up on this idea of the milk of the gospel. I think it's important to distinguish these two ideas. There, Paul will talk about the elementary doctrines of the faith. Milk as opposed to meat. That is, fundamentals of the gospel. Jesus, Son of God, died, rose again, the new life we have in Christ. Meat is the deep and glorious things of God. We ought to learn, know, and practice as we mature in the faith. But Peter here isn't simply talking about elementary doctrines that we learn and we grow on from, but rather talking about the dependency of God, his word, and his revelation in Christ to us that we must continue to come to over and over again. This is hinted at in verse 4 of chapter 2. He'll go on to say, As you come to him, that is, to Christ the Lord, the living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This building up is the same as the growing up there in verse 2 of chapter 2. So we come to the Lord to receive and to be nourished by pure spiritual milk. Well, we're learning about what Peter is describing to his readers as the Christian life. In the beginning of this epistle, we saw that he describes Christians as elect exiles, chosen among God's people, as exiles or strangers in a world that is not their home. And last week, we saw that we were to be obedient children who, because of the gospel and the new birth given to us by the mercy of God, faithfully walk in obedience, to the things God has commanded us in his word. We continue that same thought here, and we see not only are we to live as Christians in this world as exiles and as obedient children, but particularly in verse 2, like newborn infants, like babies who long for and depend on this pure spiritual milk. Another translation, I think, more accurately puts it this way, the pure milk of the word. That is, of the word of God. But through it and by it, we are nourished. We are built up. We are matured. So the question, remember, is what does Peter want of the Christian exiles that he's writing to? He wants to encourage them. He wants to bolster their faith. He wants to make them more confident in Jesus so that when they are attacked and maligned and persecuted, which is the next step in in Nero's plan, to fix their hope on the mercy of God revealed in Christ the last day. That they would believe so firmly the gospel that even in the midst of trials and suffering, they would endure faithfully. So he wants them to understand then that in order to dwell faithfully in a land as exiles, a land that is not their home, the gospel must be then both the foundation of their lives, the foundation of of their lives, the foundation of their hope, the thing on which they stand and are anchored in, and the gospel must also be the shape of their lives, the shape of their conduct, the shape of their obedience and their behavior. So inwardly, they are to be shaped by the gospel. And outwardly, they are to be shaped by the gospel. They stand on the foundation of the truth of the gospel. We've been born again to a living hope in Christ, who has been risen from the dead. And therefore, our lives outwardly reflect that. This isn't a legalistic check-the-box sort of behavior. Like, we do this because Christians ought to do this. But Christians must do this because that's who Christians are as exiles As obedient children, they are to behave and walk faithfully in light of the gospel. Last week, we talked about this as the indicative leading to the imperative. The indicative is the truth of the gospel. These things we know to be true about God who has revealed himself in his ways in Christ through the gospel. This, as it says in verse 25, the good news that was preached to you means that there's some imperatives to follow. Here's the gospel Here's what it means. Therefore, we may say, because the gospel is true, it is imperative that you live this way. That's what we mean by indicatives and imperatives. So Peter says, because of these truths, because of the gospel, because of who you are in Christ, exiles and obedient children, you must live faithfully in which the gospel becomes the foundation of your hope and the shape of your lives. And so the reality of God's grace to sinners like you and like like me is to be made evident then in our enduring faithfulness, our holding fast to the word of truth, our anchored hope in the midst of tiring persecution, walking righteously in a world that is rushing wildly past us in the other direction. If you haven't experienced that yet, You haven't put enough feet in the world or you're walking in the same direction as it. You will, friends, recognize the pressure points of your faith where the world is conflicted and opposed to it. In the midst of this, to walk faithfully and to endure well, we must hold fast to the gospel in all things. So this morning, we're seeing this particular idea. It's that the preached word, the proclaimed word, when believed by hearts of faith, empowers believers to grow in faith, maturity, in love, and obedience. The the preached word, when believed, empowers believers to grow in faith, maturity, love, and obedience. It's not simply enough To survive the threats and the persecutions of the world. To make it to the end and say, I've done it. But actually to run the race well. What Paul would say, fighting the good fight. To thrive and not simply to survive. That is, we are to grow even in the midst of trial, not simply survive. And so the word is given to us. God's grace is given to us in order that we might be empowered to believe it, to grow in it, and in all things, in faith, in maturity, in love, and even obedience. One of the shocking things we see about this letter is that Peter commands obedience even to those who would persecute. Emperors, obedience to the government, even to masters who are harsh and domineering. There's a level of obedience that's required even of Christians to such as these. The gospel makes that possible. The word which comes to us proclaimed by a faithful friend, preacher, or the spirit himself as we read the words of text together or in our private study empowers us to grow in faith. And so when we see Peter's call for obedience, to be obedient children, we see ultimately that it was rooted in God's character and it's to be guided by God's word, to be nourished and shaped by and fed by the pure milk of the word of God. So we've got five points this morning. First, I want us to understand the power of the word. It is God's word, this word which is for us the pure spiritual milk. Then we'll see the power of the word obeyed. Third, the power of the word desired. And lastly, the power of the word made flesh. The power of the word preached, obeyed, desired, and made flesh. First, notice the power of word Of the word. Look again in verses 22 through 25. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. By the truth here, he means the truth of the gospel. Verse 25, that was preached to them, the good news, that is the gospel preached to them. You have been purified, your souls have been purified by your obedience to the truth. Now, this isn't works righteousness. You're not obeying your way into purification but receiving God's word as grace and truth and believing it by faith you submit yourself to live under it that's what it means by obey obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another from a pure heart since you've been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God that's the means by which The new birth comes to us. Our hearts are regenerated. The Spirit brings and applies God's work, Christ's work of of atonement to our lives when we believe it by faith. And we are justified then as a result. All of this happens through the preaching, the proclamation, and the believing of God's word, living and abiding. The power of God's word is its power to purify those who believe it. The power of God's word comes not because it lasts for a moment and fades away, but because it is eternal. The word of the Lord remains forever, verse 25. The living and abiding word of God has a power that is unmatched and unrivaled by any other word or any other power in this world. The most powerful position that any human can take President, kingdom, CEO. Whatever authority a man might possess fails and falls under the authority and the power of God's word. God's word alone is living. God's word alone abides and remains forever. God's word alone, when believed, purifies souls. God's word alone Brings about the new birth, the new heart required for all obedience to God's word. Why is this powerful? Why is God's word able to do this? Why God's word and not my words? Why not your words? Why not somebody more charismatic than you or I? Why not somebody smarter than you or I? Why not a human? Why only God? That's because God's words are God's words. In fact, we know this because it comes from God himself. They carry the same weight and authority that God himself and God alone possesses. You know the passage, Second Timothy 3.16? All scripture is what? Breathed out by God. Inspired is the word that we would use to describe that. It's infallible, therefore, which means it doesn't fail, it doesn't fall. It's not like the grass or the flower. It doesn't wither after time. God's word is authoritative in power because it comes from God himself who possesses all authority and power. More than any man or any woman or any human who's ever lived, the power of God's word is powerful because it is God's word. Not only that, but Paul tells us in Romans 1:16 that the gospel which comes to us through God's word has the power and is the power for salvation for those who believe. That is only the gospel, the good news preached that is with words laid down and preserved for us in scripture, the gospel is the only thing that can save sinners. It is the power Unto salvation for those who would believe. In fact, Jesus himself, the word of God, is said to be the power and the wisdom of God. So the word of God is powerful because of whose word it is. God's word. And It is powerful because it can save. And it is powerful because it comes from the Lord himself. This is important to know that all of the Christian life needs to be based on and rooted on God's powerful word and word alone. Our ministry, my preaching, your exhortation and admonishment to one another, our small groups and our our sharing of of experiences, our communications in all one way or another needs to be rooted in the word of God. If it's not, we really have no business wasting those words. That doesn't mean that you can only speak Scripture. What we mean is everything you say should come from the truth of what God's Word teaches us. We should speak as if ones who are known are intimately equated with God's word. We should pray as one who's been formed by God's word. We should preach under the authority of God's word. We should admonish and correct and encourage and come alongside and weep and celebrate because God's word forms the foundation of our lives, not the wisdom of man, not the latest article you've read, not the great latest sermon you've heard, but God's word and his word alone. God's word must serve as the foundation for all things in your life. Not simply when you gather with the church or other Christians, but even in your own private life. Your thoughts themselves must be reflective of the word of God as it's put into your heart. As you memorize scripture, read it, and become more familiar with it, your thoughts themselves are be formed by it, shaped by it. You can't help but think of that verse that you thought of or read of that morning. As you're speaking with a friend or praying for a brother or sister, a verse comes to your mind by the Spirit and you pray that verse to be true over their lives. The Word of God, as powerful as it is, will effectively be rendered powerless if it has no place of priority in your life. Now hear me, I don't mean God's Word has no power, but if it's not in your life, effectively it is powerless. If you don't read it, Meditate on it, pray it, think through it, share it, speak it, listen to it. It cannot and does not work. But when it has opportunity to go, the prophet Isaiah tells us the word of God never returns void. You may be sitting here thinking of a million different things, but if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice, under the preached word of God, if you're listening to your friend encourage you, encourage you by what he's read or she's read this morning, the word of God is powerful even through your distraction, this is why we welcome babies. This is why we love children, and we don't dismiss them simply because they're distracting. No, we say, can the word of God work in the midst of a busy life, a busy family? Can we have a conversation about what God's word means to us, despite the chaos of five children, ten children, a whole nursery room full of children? The power of God's word. Must be central in our lives. And from this, we see then, secondly, the power of the word preached. Again, look at the second half of verse 25. He says, This word, this lasting, enduring, living, abiding, forever purifying word of God is the good news that was preached to you. That's the gospel. And all the words that the gospel fulfills in Scripture preached proclaimed to you. And so there is not only power in the word, but then power when the word is proclaimed, power when the word is preached to those who would hear it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and hear what Paul says about the necessity of the preaching of God's word. Romans chapter 10, verses 14. 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, as he speaks of those to whom the message of salvation must go out. When he says in verse 14 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he asks then this question. How then will they call on him on whom, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who preach good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed, what has he heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word christ that is you must hear the word you must believe the word that comes to you through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel now by this i don't simply mean what i'm doing now and on sunday mornings is the only means by which you hear and receive god's word we would be sorry christians if this was the only version of god's word you were to get But rather, more generally than that, we mean the delivery and the reception of God's Word and the gospel in all of its forms throughout the week and throughout your life. And so I do pray that as I preach and as those who share this pulpit preach to you, that you are indeed edified and receiving the gospel and God's Word. But also I pray that in the mornings, you go to God's Word to receive it as well and that the Spirit preaches to you. I pray that as a friend shares their own journey through Scripture, what the Lord has convicted them with, or encouraged them by, that you receive God's Word from this brother or sister. That as you pray with your family, that God's Word would be delivered among you. You would believe it. See, faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. This of course, raises lots of different questions that we don't have time to get into. Some of that, which you have no doubt asked yourself, what about those who never hear or can't hear or can't read? What about those who are deaf? And that is another question that Jake will answer after service or a community group on Wednesday. Needless to say, the power of God's word, which comes from God himself, is powerfully produced and affected in our lives when we hear it from someone speaking it to us, when we lay our eyes on it, when the Spirit draws it to our memory because we've thought on it and dwelled on it. And so the power of God's word comes not only to us in written form, but for those who speak it and preach it and proclaim it. This is what Peter says is important for them to know. This was the good news. This word that lives forever, that abides forever, is the good news that was preached from you. Therefore, verse one of chapter two, believe it and obey it. So thirdly, we see then the power of the word obeyed. Therefore, or so, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The New American Standard would say putting aside or putting off. That is, as you're taking off an old, dirty garment, a shirt that you've, worked out in or done the lawn in, something that you haven't washed for a while and starts to smell and is stained. Take it off. Yeah, gross, right? That's your old life. That's malice and deceit and hypocrisy. Take it off. Put it away. Get rid of it. Put it away. And instead, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. We're to put off, to take off. Paul also picks up the same sort of analogy, putting off the old self, he calls it, and put on the new. We see that in Colossians chapter three. James chapter one also teaches us, in James 1.21, something very similar to Peter. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So Peter here and James are parallel-minded to put off or put away or put aside the evil of our former lives and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save souls. So the power of God's word comes to us from God's mouth through the pens of the apostles and the prophets Preached to us by those who have been given the Spirit to do so and received by us in in order that we may obey it. See, the sins listed here in verse 1 are are those that are opposed to brotherly love. In verse 22, chapter 1, we are to pursue brotherly love. We are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But here, there's a bunch of impurities Which is why in verse 2 he says, long for the purity of the word of God. So the sins here are opposed. They stand in in contrast to the love that we are to share with one another, the affection by which we are to welcome one another in as brothers and sisters, as family, adopted sons and daughters of God. And notice also that these all deal essentially with matter, with a matter of truth. Truth. Malice is wickedness. It's evil, which at its very core resists God, whose word is true. Deceit or guile, as the authorized version, of the KJV might say it, is deception. It's, it's falsehood. It's opposite of truth. Hypocrisy, of course, is to show what is not true in order that you may be viewed as something else. Envy is a warped perspective of what is true and desiring what is not. And slander, of course, are words that are untrue about somebody else. What's important to recognize here is that truth is at stake because it is truth that is in the gospel. That is why in verse 22, we are said as Christians to have given ourselves to the obedience to the truth. The gospel, the word of God, And so all sins that reject as true the gospel must be put away. Everything that looks at the gospel and God's word as false must be dealt with. But God's word comes powerfully in our lives when we submit ourselves to it, when we put aside or put off these things. Notice also, not only do they deal with truth, but one tends to lead to the other. There seems to be some order in the way Peter describes what's happening here. Malice, this disposition of hurt and hate towards other, leads to deceit, which leads to hypocrisy, envy, and slander. We see them building as a downward spiral or this vicious cycle where one leads to the other, sin after sin. But the gospel of God's truth, when we submit ourselves to it, allows us instead to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So God's word comes powerfully to us because it is God's word itself, preached to us and delivered to us by faithful proclaimers of the gospel. And it's powerful when we obey it. And we need to obey it in all of life. It's not simply to Obey what's told here, but when God's word comes to you, we must submit ourselves to it in all arenas of our lives. The gospel must rule our hearts, our minds, and our tongues. Malice and deceit are sins of the heart. Hypocrisy comes from the heart which desires to be seen and known as one thing when reality were another. It's inconsistency. Envy and slander are sins of the mouth, of the tongue when we speak ill of others, when we desire in our hearts what is not ours, when we warp in our minds the goodness and the image of God in which others are created, all of life, our our tongues, our minds, our hearts, our hands must be submitted and obedient to the gospel. It's to be obeyed all of life and most uniquely to be obeyed in community. That is, he's writing to a group of Christians to live faithfully together. Again, look at the list of sins here. These are all community-destroying sins. Malice towards one another, deceit. You can be self-deceived, but deceit here also works as you deceive others hypocritical towards others, envious of others, slandering others. These are all community-destroying sins. And so Peter's point here is that you are to obey this in all of life in the community in which you exist. As you gather together as an exilic community, brotherly love and affection is to be practiced and pursued. So here's the question. We are to, to give ourselves over to the putting away of all of these things and pursuing of the spiritual milk of God's word means that we have to ask with whatever decision, whatever question we have, whatever action we decide to take or decision we need to make is is it in line with the gospel? Is it in line with the gospel? Does this promote brotherly love and affection? Or does this tear down my brothers or sisters? Does this lead to the building up the body of Christ or does it lead to the slandering of those among the body of Christ? We are to be in line with the gospel. When it says in verse two that we may grow up into salvation, by that Peter means you are growing and maturing in accordance with your salvation, ultimately to be perfected in the final days, but having been saved, you grow into it. So recently my son received a lot of oversized shirts from really generous family who has a little bit older sons than we have. And so we're trying it on and most of it doesn't fit. They're about two sizes too big. The reality is shepherd has the shirt and it's his, but he needs to grow into it. We have our salvation. We must grow up into it. We need to grow in accordance with it. So the power of God's word works powerfully among us and among the community of God's people when it is obeyed. And so when we ask the question of our lives, what must we do and how must we live to live in obedience to the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel, we must look to these texts and these words to be guided. So the power of the word comes to us from God's, God's finger, as it were. The power of God's word is preached. The power of God's word is obeyed. Fourth, in verses two through three there of chapter two, notice the power of the word desired. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, after listing these several community-destroying vices, what Peter doesn't do, and this is interesting, he doesn't then command his readers to go and pursue or strive for a list of virtues. That might be the natural progression, we would think. Don't do these things, but strive for this. But notice what he does instead. Instead, he tells them, he calls on them, really the command of this section here is right there, long or desire the pure milk of the word. It's not first to strive after virtues to conform yourself to outside behaviors, but to inwardly desire God's word, which will nourish and sustain you as the infant is nourished and sustained by the milk of its mother. See, the milk of the word here is described as pure, this pure spiritual milk. And the word there for pure is literally undeceiving. It's the opposite of the word there for hypocrisy. And so we see that this is a hint, of course, that clues us into the reality that it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone that possesses purity. And it is by the Word of God alone, in verse 22 of chapter 1, we see that we are purified by faith. The Word preached to us when believed by faith is made effectual. So the word of God must be desired among God's people and among the community of God's people. The pure milk of the word is undeceiving. It's unguiling, It is pure. And like the milk that comes from a mother to its infant, or unlike this, rather, we never outgrow it. We never outgrow our desire for it or our need of it. We cannot outgrow our dependency upon it. There comes, I think for many mothers, a joyful day when their children are weaned from breastfeeding. Let this never be the case for children of God who are to be nourished by the spiritual milk of God's word. We never outgrow it. We never outgrow our need or dependency upon it. Let me quote from you, John Calvin, I think, again, he helpfully puts it this way, that milk here is not this elementary doctrine which one perpetually learns and then never comes to the knowledge of the truth, but it's the mode of living which has the savor of the new birth when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. God's word comes to us. We submit ourselves to it as children submit themselves to their parents, when newborn infants submit themselves to the nourishing activity of her mother, brought up, sustained by God, and we are shown to live as God's children with a savor of a new birth. That word must be longed for and desired among us. In fact, we must lament, friends, I think, honestly, that many of us do not have a strong enough desire for God's word. We we don't long for it. This is true of me as it might be for anyone else in this room. What I long for in the morning is a cup of coffee. That my children sleep in a little longer than normal. On my best days, I know that the thing that can truly fill me up is time in God's Word. That must be the longing the sustaining work that we submit ourselves to, indeed commit ourselves to, that we may grow in accordance with the doctrine of God. So the power of God's word must be seen. And the power of God's word obeyed and preached. And the power of God's word desired for when it is desired. Then the whole focus of our lives becomes not about ourselves, not about our personal ministries, not about the growth of our church, not about the success of our dealings in the world, not about the the finances that we hope to achieve, not about the goals we set for ourselves, but ultimately it becomes about the true and abiding word of God becoming real in our lives as it teaches us how to live in light of the gospel. That becomes the focus. Let it be said of us that we are Christians who long for and desire God's word and whose sole purpose in life, above all things, is to be known by and obey God. Lastly, we see the power of the Word made. This is the Word incarnate. He is the Logos. That's the same word, root word, here used by the pure spiritual milk. That ESV, word spiritual, really is a borrowing of the phrase of Logos, which I think more rightly would be interpreted pure milk of the word. Because here Peter speaks of the truth and the abiding of God's word. And John speaks of the enduring and the intruth. The power of the word may flesh is the heart of the gospel. Jesus, God's son, becomes like us. Though we don't fully understand the mystery of the incarnation, or what it means for Jesus to be fully man and fully God, we know that the truth of the gospel is that Jesus did come that he took on flesh, that he was made like us, and he suffered for us. He was killed, nailed, and destroyed on the cross by human hands in which he endured all of God's wrath against our sins, your sin, my sins, and the sin of the whole world for all those who would believe in him. He suffered death and God's wrath for their sins, and he was put in a tomb dead, not dying, but dead. But God on the third day raised him. That was his victory over the grave. That was the stamp of approval by God on the sacrifice Christ offered on our behalf. And this power comes because God himself was made flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, became Son of Man. He took on flesh for us that he might be a substitute for us. And so the word of God is good. It's to be desired because it is God's word and God is good. And by God's word, we come to know Christ in the gospel, who for us is our highest good. If we didn't have Christ in the gospels, this word would mean very little to us. There's no hope for salvation. There's no hope for sin. There's no hope to escape condemnation. Only the words of Christ, his gospel, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, that's the good news the gospel preached to us that what must believe, and that is the power of the gospel made flesh in Christ. Christ for us is our highest good, and the power is made manifest in his death and resurrection. The Lord's kindness, of course, is seen most clearly in Jesus' death and resurrection. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you must long for this truth. The Lord is good. I love the way the New American Standard puts it. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That word for good or kindness here is a play on words. Very close to the Greek word for Christ, and as verse four picks up, you go to Him, your highest good, and the display of God's kindness to the world is Christ. For so the Lord's kindness to us is manifested in Christ's goodness, and it's displayed for us in His Word. And so, friends, let us be like newborn infants who long for the goodness of God's word, not because in it we find the secret to living, not because we have some promise of prosperity or health or wealth, but because in it we see Jesus, the savior of our souls. In it, we find the powerful and effective living and abiding word of God active on our behalf, convicting us of sin, encouraging us in grace, growing us in faith building us up together in love and leading us in paths of righteousness. Again, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. It is his word, and his word is powerful. Let's pray. Father, there are, as always, many stones left unturned. So this week, may we continue to explore and think of your word. But above all, Lord, we must admit and confess the neglect of our own hearts in longing for the Word, which is for us our nourishment and our sustenance as spiritual children. But Lord, in this rebuke we receive, this indictment we receive by the Spirit as we see in your Word, let us also be encouraged that you are a loving and a good God who has sent forth Christ who has died for us. And in his death, he suffered the sins and the consequences and the wrath that we deserved so that we could be born again. And that by this new birth, we may receive and believe and be empowered to obey this word. So Lord, let us be humble and meek like little children. Let us be dependent like infants on your word as it's preached and delivered to us. Let us have indeed, like Jesus says, a childlike faith dependent on you for all things. And let us not find our nourishment on the words of the world, but on the living and abiding, the enduring word of God. We pray now and ask in Jesus' name. These things. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.